Hey, Town Hall listeners. We hope you enjoy this episode, a conversation with Senator Chris Coons. If you're interested in the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act that Senator Coons discusses, join us this week on our companion podcast, We the People, where we will explore the constitutional questions surrounding the act. And join us back here next week on Live at America's Town Hall, where we will share more from our November 28th symposium, The Constitution in Crisis, What Would the Founders Say? Enjoy the show. Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast bringing you live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programming. Today's episode features Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, who joined NCC President Jeffrey Rosen on stage for a one-on-one conversation on November 28th. The Senator discusses the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act, a bill he co-authored, and the President's firing power, as well as broader issues like the future of the Senate in the wake of the midterms, and his desire to make the Constitution a bigger part of the work of the Senate. This panel was produced in partnership with The Atlantic as part of our national symposium, The Constitution in Crisis, What Would the Founders Think? Here's Jeff to get us started. Thank you so much, Senator Coons. In the tradition of your fellow Delawarean, Senator Biden jumping off the train and coming right to the NCC. And you just left a floor vote in the Senate where the Special Protection Act uh, for uh, Robert Mueller, uh, which you have co-sponsored along with Senators Booker and Lindsey Graham, was blocked by- And Tom Tillis. And and Tom Sellers, was blocked by your fellow co-chair of the Madisonian Commission that's convening today, Senator Mike Lee, And Senator Lee objected to it on the grounds that it is unconstitutional because it violates (laughs) Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison v. Olson. So it's a wonderful constitutional lead-in to our discussion. What is the precise nature of Senator Lee's constitutional objection, and why do you think it is wrong? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, it's great to be with you again. Thank you um, to the National Constitution Center of the Atlantic. Thank you to all of you. It is great to be in a room full of people actually genuinely interested in the vibrancy and status of our democracy and the work of Madison and in the conceptualizing uh, of our um, democratic republic in the 21st century. Um, Professor Lee and I, as I love to call him, um, have a persistent conversation um, that really was also at the heart of my um, first and second round of questioning of now Justice Kavanaugh, if any of you um, watched any of that. Um, It's a simple but complex point, I think, which is that um, the word all is absent from the the second article. Um, And in the description of the scope of the president's power, um, I don't think it is uh, reasonable, um, historical, or accurate to impute the word all to the sentence the president shall have the executive power of the United States. Let me be more specific. In a case um, considering the independent counsel statute, which I'll remind you is a a law that has now expired. It was allowed to lapse because both Republicans and Democrats thought that the Ken Starr era independent counsels as opposed to the current special counsel um, had gone off the rails a bit. 
In reviewing that law, the Supreme Court, by a majority of seven to one, upheld it as constitutional. And the core question at issue in Morrison v. Olson was whether or not it impermissibly um, circumscribed the president's power that he could not fire at will the independent counsel. The current special counsel is dramatically more um, controlled, reined in, directed by the attorney general. If seven justices, ranging all, I mean, from Brennan to Rehnquist, found it constitutional for there to be some limitation on the president's unbridled authority to fire at will all lesser executive officers, I find it hard to believe um, that it is unconstitutional for us to enact in statute the regulation, current regulations of the Department of Justice that say that the Attorney General cannot fire, the President through the Attorney General, cannot fire a special counsel without cause. And if fired without cause, that cause being you know, disability, dereliction, incompetence, um, there is some judicial remedy. Um, this is not an academic question, and this is not an ancient question. Morrison v. Olson's 20 years old. Justice Scalia wrote the dissent. It was a very well-crafted dissent. It was Scalia at his snarkiest and most insightful and most compelling, exactly the sort of dissent that a first-year law student goes, yes, right? And the majority opinion is kind of, you know, woolen, but right. <laughs> and in an important footnote, the DC Circuit considered this exact question this year, and a guy named, what was it again? Kavanaugh wrote an opinion which was reversed on bank in which he was um, blistered by the majority that upheld um, Morrison v. Olson and said that Judge Kavanaugh's writings in dissent below, excuse me, um, were wide of the mark, uh, misread history, I wish I could remember all the different nasty things they said about his opinion. Um, I find it hard to believe, sorry, I've gone on too no, long. No, 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 no. Um, I find it hard to believe that Senator Lee believes as fervently and deeply as he does that it puts at risk our constitutional scheme if the president can't fire at will every lesser executive officer. I'm sure there's more than one person here who's heard of Humphrey's executor. Humphrey's executor essentially defends the FDR era three-letter independent agency structure. There's a wonderful footnote in Kavanaugh's opinion earlier this year. Is it footnote 18? Do you know this? I've got several people nodding in the Just room. Just the audience, the, half I, the audience. Says, no, it was oh actually yes, 19. No, it was footnote yes. 16, Chris. <laughs> I knew this when I was questioning him. Yes. Um, he says all sorts of things in dicta in footnotes here and there and in his treatment of Humphrey's executor in that footnote he suggests that it need not be reached now but I think is clearly laying the groundwork for where this theory of executive power goes which is an unrestrained executive power to fire at will independent agency heads now if you watched he would vigorously deny that he, in fact, in my second round of questioning, accused me of taking him out of context, of uh, reaching conclusions unreached in his writings and speeches, and I recited back to him. In fact, I think I had him up on a big board. Quotes from speeches, uh, passages from opinions, um, and when we ran out of time in what was a vigorous exchange, 
Um, I then sent him a letter saying, I invite you in writing in the questions for the record. Please point out how I am misquoting you. Please point out how I am mischaracterizing your opinion, your views, or your record. I pray that I am wrong. See my testimony in committee. Um, I chose to publicly announce that I would vote against now Justice Kavanaugh before Dr. Blasey Ford's letter came to light because of his extreme views on executive power. I'm convinced um, Senator Lee holds those same extreme views on executive power, and I challenged him today on the floor when he came and objected um, to the unanimous consent request by Senator Flake and said, oh, it's unconstitutional. I did something I never get to do. I said, well, the senator yield for a question because <laughs> he was citing Scalia's opinion. And I said, Senator, is it not true that Scalia's opinion was in fact a dissent? He said, yes, it was a dissent. I said, what was the decision? What was the, how many justices, tell me something. He said, it was seven to one. I said, seven to one, how striking, Senator. <laughs> I said, is it possible that Morrison v. Olson is still good law? He said, I'm very late for an appointment. <laughs> I went over to him later in the afternoon and I said, Michael, we've got to fight and we've got to have it. Let's have it on the floor of the Senate. Yes. We are gonna have a great hour back and forth. I'm still, I'm ready to go. And so's he. Excellent. So we are looking forward to a vigorous debate on the floor about an obscure but important point. Is the president accountable? Is it impossible to investigate him? Can he fire at will a special prosecutor and in so doing elude accountability for misdeeds in office? I think this matters. And I look forward to the debate. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Hello. and I Chris and I were law school classmates. Our constitutional law professors would have been proud. Uh, and ac I, actually, I'm sorry, can I say this? Sure. So there was one professor who came and testified against my special counsel protection statute. Guess who it was? Oh, that's true. Akil Amar, our common law professor. Well, nobody's, nobody's perfect. But it is also <laughs> thrilling to hear that your co fellow National Constitution Center Madisonian co-chair Mike Lee has accepted your challenge to debate the Constitution on the floor of the Senate. You know that's been a long-standing goal of the Madisonian Commission, right. and that will be a meaningful constitutional debate. And my question is, why aren't there more constitutional debates on the floor of the Senate? This is precisely what the framers intended. Throughout the 19th century, we had serious constitutional debates between yep. people like Webster and others. Yep. I, I, when was the last constitutional debate you can recall? And why aren't there more? And how can the Constitution Center help encourage that you have more still? This afternoon, it was a minute and a half, and um, the obvious and evident disinterest of the vast majority of the senators on the floor <laughs> was a hint. Um, you know, I'll take the question seriously because yes. it, does, it does concern me. Um, senator Leahy, now um, the longest serving uh, Democratic senator and former um, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, when I first was spending time as a brand new senator, you know, going and meeting with him and asking him about the institution of the Senate and how it's changed in our current environment, um, he recollected how in the two hours before a big vote, senators would gradually find their way to the floor and find their seats. And in the last hour, each party would sort of put forward like gladiators, their best, their most focused, their sharpest advocates for whatever the particular bill was that was about to be before the Senate for a vote. And members would sit there and enraptured listen as the argument sort of goes this way and you go, oh yeah, I guess I really 
should vote for this. And then it goes the other way, oh, I guess I really should vote against that. And you could almost feel the outcome sway as advocates made their case before you. That is utterly not the case today. When asking my predecessor, well, you know, there's so much that we have to know, so many issue areas. I mean, literally everything from Native American rights to, you know, atmospheric science from authorization of NASA to figuring out trade deals. How do you, you know, how do you find the time? He said, oh, you just walk down and there's a little thing on the table that says vote no or vote yes. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, the caucus position. You just, you just walk down and look at it. It says vote no, vote yes. Yeah, that's what you do and you leave. I went, but, but there's this, but uh, shouldn't you, yeah. Um, I will tell you more often than not, the amount of time I dedicate to really getting input from my staff and reflecting on an important nomination or vote, if it's 10 minutes, that's a rare day. Because in the overwhelming majority of cases, we're not engaging in the amendment process that would shape or uh, move a bill. We almost literally never actually have an open amendment process, which used to be regular, so that you could come to the floor and listen to a description and say, okay, I've read it, my staff's talked to me about it, I've heard from Delawareans about it. Delawareans are in the house, thank you, yeah. Um, and I'll vote for it if we change this, if an amendment is adopted that does that. And you work the other side and your side and you say, okay, I've got 51 and now we're going to take out this section or we're going to amend. And they literally would do that on the floor in real time. It's called legislating. <laughs> now it's all prepackaged. And each side allows their leadership to protect them by not having them take hard votes. I'll never forget Senator Begich, former Senator Begich of Alaska, very sharply saying to our former majority leader, Harry Reid, you protected me so well, I lost my seat. And Harry said, you should have asked this other member who was in my office every single week asking me to protect him from having to take tough votes. At the end of the day, senators fall into two camps, basically. Those who say, I'd rather vote. That's what I'm getting paid for. I'm a big boy, big girl, whatever. And, you know, put the hard issues out there and let me vote. And those who say, oh boy, don't, you know, because there are amendments during Votorama that are perfectly crafted, shaped charges designed to make an attack at. Most of the senators I've admired are not afraid to vote. How do we get back to a place where there are actual debates? Mm -hmm. There was this senator from Illinois named Mark Kirk. Some of you may be familiar with him. Now I'm gonna depress you a little bit more. Um, Mark comes up to me on the floor one day and says, in his particular, I won't use the language he used. Um, he says, Coons, you seem like a senator who doesn't need your staff's permission to express himself. <laughs> and I said, I think I still have some independent will. What do you mean? He says, you were a college debater, weren't you? I said, yes, I spent most of college debating all over the country. He said, great. I want to debate you on the floor of the Senate. That's our problem. Nobody ever comes out here and actually has a, an argument. I said, you're absolutely right. That'd be great fun. How do we figure this out? He goes, let's pick a topic, not looking for a shot to the head, not looking to embarrass each other, but something we actually disagree on. Get 10, 20 minutes and come to the floor. From that conversation to the day that we actually had a vibrant floor debate on the balanced budget amendment was six months. 
Both of our staff were horrified. Our chiefs of staff promptly had a conference call about how their bosses had lost their minds. And they had to figure out a way to stop us. Mark got busy going to a flea market and buying a chess clock and figuring out that the rules actually didn't allow that. And so we had to get a special rule passed so that we could actually debate rather than this very, you know, I get five minutes and you get five minutes, right? Our staff made us do a pre-debate that nobody saw except our staff because they were terrified we might say something. In the end, it was wonderful, I think, to virtually all the general public, stultifyingly dull, but to the model UN geeks in the room, it was great. What topic did we pick? A balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. Mark came to the floor, like ready to go, charged, completely convinced that a balanced budget amendment is the fix to the problems of our nation, and I had five counter arguments. We had a great time. Mark had a stroke about 10 days later. I have searched for a partner willing and able to do the same sense. I have berated, challenged, questioned, mm. and poked a dozen colleagues to no good result yet. But let's try again with Lee. And, and let's make it the first of a series of constitutional debates. Senator yep. Lee cares as much about these constitutional he issues does. as you he do. He does, and he is eager and ready to go, and I tell you, I can, I can tell you right now, my staff will be horrified because we will inevitably end up debating the Dormant Commerce Clause. No, but that's very important. It is very important. Of course it is very important. Of we, course you should yes. run the National Constitution. Well, of course you should be in the Senate. <laughs> and for goodness sake, Mike Lee, Senator Lee, yeah. is writing a children's book with his kids called The Runaway Clause about this terrible monster that's expanded so much, the Commerce Clause, that it's menacing children. I'm not kidding. He's a great constitutionalist. No, no. He is a great He no, is no. a great constitutionalist. His father Absolutely. was Rex Lee, the U.S. Absolutely. Solicitor General, and I think he reads the scripture and the yep. Constitution with his kids yes. every night. Yes. Uh, All joking here. aside, no. I, I should take some responsibility for having not picked up the tools and gone back to work. I've tried, but I but, should keep trying. And here's why it is obviously important, and the time is right. So Senator Sass has talked about the need for Congress to exercise its constitutional yes. duties to check the president, and there are plenty on the left who now agree with that. So might it be possible by framing these as a series of constitutional, not political debates, right. that you can engage people like Senator Lee and Senator Sass to have serious agreement and disagreement about these important issues? We could. And it, frankly, if we can get Sass in the mix and in the room, I think that's even more exciting to me. Yes. Uh, let, me um, let me also say this about Senator Lee, um, so I don't leave the mistaken impression that I'm not taking him seriously. Um, Senator Lee has been a serious, engaged, and now effective proponent of criminal justice reform for three Congresses. I've co-sponsored legislation that he has written and led, um, and we are right now in the middle of a, a moment uh, where I'm helping on the whip team with Senator Durbin. He's leading the whip team on the Republican side. Um, we might really enact the most significant piece of sentencing and criminal justice reform in 20 years. Uh, and Senator Lee deserves a lot of the credit for being just absolutely tireless uh, at pushing that, and I think that's really admirable. Tell us more about that bill, and if that passes, does it give the lie to the idea that Congress is so polarized that it can't pass meaningful reform? Yes. Um, so, so sort of briefly at, at a high level, if I might, um, there's two different bills, um, um, Senator Durbin, Senator Whitehouse, um, Senator Lee, Senator Cornyn, 
are the principal architects. One key piece of it is about um, reducing, min reducing mandatory minimums. Um, so on the sentencing side, there's a variety of sentencing reforms um, that eliminate stacking, for example, uh, where you essentially get multiple bites at the apple in terms of sentencing someone. Um, there's a variety of sentencing reform pieces, and there's a variety of um, existing sentence reduction pieces. This is the piece where Lee has worked the hardest. It allows judicial review of excessive sentences um, due to some mandatory minimum issues. Many of you may be familiar with ways in which um, sentences uh, for crack cocaine as opposed to powder cocaine were dramatically different, orders of magnitude different. Um, and many people were sentenced to very long um, sentences under these uh, unequal provisions. Um, subsequently, Congress went back and amended and revised um, those statutes, but there is no mechanism, this is a piece of the statute, to allow a judge to go back and retroactively apply the revised downward standard after reviewing the case and the sentencing issues. So um, essentially, this whole effort creates avenues for nonviolent offenders um, to be released early, to get good time credit after judicial review of the initial sentence um, and the particulars of their case, and to reduce ways in which mandatory minimums uh, may be applied going forward. Why does this matter? Uh, we have 4% of the world's population and I think 15% of the world's um, imprisoned, might be, might be higher, may be wrong, it might be 20%. We spend an enormous amount of money imprisoning Americans. Um, in the federal um, law enforcement um, side of appropriations, we spend more on the Bureau of Prisons than we spend on the FBI, the DEA, the ATF combined. Um, and um, the sentences that have been handed out under some of these federal statutes are so long that the prospects um, for folks coming back to society, and the vast majority of them are released at some point and come back to society, um, as in any way productive citizens um, are remote. So the most compelling piece of this for me is the dramatically unequal impact on communities of color. Um, if you're unfamiliar with uh, one of my favorite Delawareans, Brian Stevenson wrote a book, um, Just Mercy, um, about some of the impact um, of criminal justice uh, in the Deep South, in particular in Alabama. Um, he and many others, um, who've been really strong advocates for criminal justice reform have gotten it rolling. The Koch brothers and the evangelical community in the conservative side and advocates from you know, Southern Poverty Law Center to the NAACP to LCCR have been pushing criminal justice reform for a long time. We may finally be at the place where because of the wonderful historical accident that the president's son-in-law has a father who spent time in federal prison. And so Jared is, I mean, he is very sincere about this and very passionate about this. <coughs> that plus the timely compelled resignation of the attorney general um, may have created the moment here for a genuine bipartisan compromise to be signed into law. Wow. When we last uh, saw each other, uh, it was the uh, NCC Atlantic uh, first uh, Madisonian conversation and you were with Senator Flake and it was right during that brief shining moment when both of you agreed to allow the investigation <laughs> to continue. But even then you were quite pessimistic about the future institutional legitimacy of the Senate and the Supreme Court. Has anything since then made you less pessimistic? 
Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just thinking for a second. Look, in my institution in the Senate, um, the specific senators who were defeated for re-election and the way it affects the contour of my caucus um, has been exceptionally hard for me and for how I see my institution because four active legislator centrist Democrats are retiring and being replaced by uh, folks who may not be as um, committed to legislating and, and, and centrist as they, who knows. Um, I'm really quite optimistic about Senator Romney, Senator-elect uh, Mitt Romney from Utah, and the role he may play um, in a Senate which is, I think, genuinely losing some of its most important voices with the passing of Senator McCain uh, and the imminent retirement of Senators Flake and Corker. In the House, um, there genuinely was a blue wave in that there were 40 new House members. In the immediate suburbs of Philadelphia, several just spectacular candidates won. Um, when I first met Chrissy Houlihan, I, I sort of blurted out, oh my God, you're perfect. <laughs> she looks at me and she says, excuse me? And I, I, I said, I'm sorry, just as a campaign junkie, if I'd gone in a lab and tried to design the perfect Democratic candidate, you're it. <laughs> MIT, Stanford, Air Force veteran, volunteered with Teach for America in West Philadelphia, started a vibrant and successful company, and now interested in beneficial corporations. <laughs> Please run. <laughs> yes, I'm a geek. And so there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people who ran for office at the state and local level for the first time because they literally couldn't stand it. They got up off their couch and they said, I'm going to do something about this. And they went, and they signed paper and they raised money. They ran for office. And in little old Delaware, I went door knocking with a dozen of them. Folks who'd never run for office before. We have a new state representative, a new state senator in Brandywine Hunter, who are just awesome, capable, talented, smart, who are bringing to their service in Dover in, in our legislative body. In one case, a, a woman who has served in our attorney general's office uh, as, a, as a prosecutor, um, protecting both children from abusers and seniors from fraud. And her own son contracted leukemia, and it effectively stopped everything for several years while she and her husband focused on navigating his care. Um, he's stable and asymptomatic now. And after that, rather than just going back to work, um, seeing what's happening to our country, she decides to throw herself into running. State representative is a hard job. You know, there's not a lot of glory. Your phone rings off the hook. You go to countless neighborhood meetings. You can never satisfy everybody. It's just democracy at its best. It's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, these long evenings trudging through various neighborhoods, knocking on people's doors saying, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Chris Coons, and, and I'd like to introduce you to, it's just so much fun. Um, Delaware is so small that on a number of occasions, A, not one Delawarean was surprised that a U.S. senator was on their doorstep. Not one, which is great. And on several occasions, they said the equivalent of, oh, I, hi, Chris, I've got something on the stove. Could you come back in 20 minutes? <laughs> I'm kind of busy right now. And these first-time candidates were just like slack-jawed about, don't you realize he's, I'm like, it's, we'll, we'll come back. Thanks, it's great. <laughs> 10 years in county government, if you don't believe in grassroots democracy and in accountability to the electorate, boy, 10 years in county government will beat it out of you. Um, but 
I am passionate about democracy and connectivity and about empowered voters. And somehow, what gives me some hope was your question, really. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm going on a great length. No, no, that's great. What gives me some hope is really not so much a few great candidates in the House and the blue wave and the Democrats retaking control of the House, but it's much, much more the same thing that drove Chrissy Houlihan to get up off her couch and hurl herself into running for this crazy place called the House of Representatives is what made Krista Griffith, um, is what made a number of candidates, mostly women, run statewide or local in Delaware for the very first time. Um, David Singleton's uh, here with us this evening. He was my uh, chief of staff and I was county executive. And I still don't know how I deserved um, just how hard you worked and how much you brought to that work. But, you know, David's one of those heroes of local service who literally spent decades of his life making our city better, making our state better, making a county better. Um, that's the kind of thing that inspires me is people like David who show up at 5 a.m., has his midday meal at like 7.30 a.m. and is grinding away at 6 p.m. and really just to make our community a better place. So um, I believe deeply in our constitutional democracy, in our republic, in our order, and in the importance of the values that underlay it. We wouldn't have this society today without a culture that understands and values rule of law and separation of powers. These are phrases that your average American just chatting at a Wawa or standing on their porch, it comes up in conversation. And people get that we are in a dangerous, in a difficult place, that the waters are deep and getting fairly rough. They don't know how to fix it, but an awful lot of people decided the way to fix it was to get up off their couch and go vote. There are some intriguing ideas about how we might vote differently as Maine just did. There's some challenges about how we might weave ourselves back together and re-empower our committees and, and more junior members and get some of the power out of the hands of the suite of the majority and minority leader, the speaker and the minority leader in the Senate and the House. There's things we have to do to reclaim some of Congress's power from the executive. And the little batting on the nose that the president took today as we passed by an overwhelming majority um, the resolution on Yemen um, is one hint of that. Um, there's a lot of work to do. But I'll tell you, and um, then I'll let you ask a question. Um, I really am turning into a senator, right? Filibustering? <laughs> this filibustering thing, it's fun. Um, the thing that best brought me together with Senators Corker and Flake was travel to distant and difficult places where democracy is either unknown um, or in serious trouble. Flake and I traveled to Zimbabwe and had an incredibly memorable, unintended lunch with Mugabe, the dictator um, of Zimbabwe. And we returned um, just this year um, to sit with Emerson Nangagwa, the new and now elected president of Zimbabwe. And to be in a country as beautiful and vibrant as Zimbabwe with a constitution that has sort of some soaring passages, but where the governance has been so awful and the people so long suffering. Um, on the long trip over and the long trip back in between meetings with human rights activists, with judges, with people in the minority party who literally risk their lives for democracy every day. That's the moment where someone like Jeff who we, we share virtually no political, he's very conservative. He's a genuine, deeply conservative man, but a really good person. And he loves this country and he cares about it and he gets what it means. 
it's in places like that, traveling to Afghanistan with Bob Corker, um, traveling to Zimbabwe um, with Jeff Flake, that you look back on our country from the perspective of halfway around the world and realize how fragile and special and demanding democracy is. It is not an observer's sport. It is not fodder for social media. It is not played best by tribes. It is only sustained by an informed and empowered electorate that owns it and builds it and makes it. And only if we send representatives to Washington who are more interested in the vibrancy of our democracy than in their own reelection do we have any hope of survival. So what would you like to talk about? Senator Coons, you have to get to your next appointment. And I have to say, for inspiring all Americans to live up to the better angels of our nature, for your pledge to have constitutional debates with your fellow Madisonian co-chair, Senator Lee, and for being exactly the kind of senator that James Madison hoped for, please join me in thanking Senator Chris Coons. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. <laughs>